Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, truly you have called us with the most amazing, most profound calling. And it is so true that we're easily distracted, we're easily distressed, we're easily carried away by the the worries and the concerns, the pressures, the sorrows of this life. And we lose sight of what it means that you are a faithful God. A God whose goodness is over all of his works. A God whose yes is yes. A God whose yes is yes in Jesus our Lord in whom we have life, in whom we have the surety of the Spirit, the pledge of perfection in the consummation to come. And so, Father, I too pray that you would capture our hearts and minds this morning, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Enable us by your Spirit to perceive and to hold tightly to what we don't naturally perceive, what naturally escapes our notice, what naturally gets pressed aside. Meet us in our weakness, build us up in this most holy faith. By your good spirit, minister the truth to each one according to his need, according to his understanding according to his faith. Work in each one for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We continue in our series in the Psalms, and Believe it or not, there is a method to my madness. I, I'm not just arbitrarily picking these psalms. Uh, I've, I've tried to think about how to kind of partition thematically the Psalter. And so I've wanted to start with this basic foundation of, if you will, psalms of celebration. If the psalms are, and indeed they are, they were Israel's songs of worship, the center of Israel's worship of their covenant God, composed as songs to be sung in worship, at the very center of that celebration of that worship was the reality of Israel's sonship. Israel corporately and individually was son of God, elect from all the earth to be God's people on behalf of the well-being, on behalf of the blessing of God to all the families of the earth. And the Psalms are centered in that reality of Israel's sonship. And that's why I've titled this series, The Songs of Sonship. But I wanted to begin with 
what to me is the starting point, which is the celebratory nature of that sonship. If these psalms are songs of worship, celebration is at the very heart of worship. And so we began where the Psalter begins, where the Jews organized their own songs of worship with Psalms 1 and 2, which establish just the, the fact of the blessedness of the sons of God, a celebration centered in the blessedness that belongs to the children of God, but without really explaining that at any depth. And then we looked at Psalm 8, which shows that that blessedness is fundamentally tied to the purpose of God's human creature, man as created to be image son, to rule over the works of his hands in his name, in his glory, man to be priest king on behalf of the created order, to manifest God's life and love and wise rule in the world and to gather up the creation's praise back to God, that regal priestly function. We saw that in Psalm 8. But I want today to consider Psalm 91, which begins to unfold the nature of this blessedness. What really is this blessedness that attends the sons of God as image children created in this way to rule over the works of his hands? If you would turn with me to Psalm 91, we'll read it, and then I'll give some introductory and background Uh, observations concerning it and then draw out what I think are some important pieces in terms of what do we do with this psalm. Perhaps this is familiar to many of you. Some of you may have even committed it to memory. It's It's a marvelous psalm. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to Yahweh, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness, his integrity is the idea. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and behold the recompense of the wicked. For you have made Yahweh, the one who is my refuge, you have made him, the Most High, your dwelling place. So no evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the serpent, the young lion and the dragon you will trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him. I will honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him, and I will cause his eyes to feast on my salvation. A marvelous psalm of promises, of assurances, again unfolding the blessedness 
that belongs to the children of God. The psalm is anonymous, but some traditions have held that it was actually penned by Moses. Psalm 90 was penned by Moses, or at least it's ascribed to him in the text, in the tradition. And there are reasons to believe that. Uh, Thematically, some of the same sorts of ideas, O Yahweh, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. The same idea comes forth in Psalm 91. Also, the circumstances that are uh, kind of fleshed out poetically here of deliverance from pestilence and danger that stalks at night and danger during the day. That was very much Israel's experience even in the, uh, uh, the Egyptian episode, the Passover, the liberation out of Egypt. Safety and protection and provision in the, in the darkness of God's judgment on the people of Israel slaughter around them in terms of the animals and the firstborn, and yet it did not touch them. And those sorts of ideas have led some to believe that Psalm 91 is itself also composed by Moses to the sons of Israel during the time that they were in the wilderness. And we don't know that, but it certainly speaks very well to that time and the way in which God, in fact, protected and delivered his people in the context of their own faithfulness. So fundamentally, the the theme of the psalm is the provision of security and protection and victory of triumph that Yahweh gives to those who take refuge in him. Note the way the psalm begins. Again, keep in mind the the Hebrew parallelism and the way that it works to to create the, the point. The one who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty, taking refuge in him. And that imagery is spatial. It deals with a place, right? Refuge here in the shelter of of God, in, in the shadow of God. But the actual significance, the meaning of that symbolism is relational. To reside in the place of God's shelter is to live a life characterized by trust in him. To abide in the shadow of the Almighty, to take refuge in his shelter, to dwell in that place, is to live a life characterized by trust. You see that in verse 2. I will say to Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress. What does that mean? My God in whom I trust. This is not about going to a place. This is not about a theological idea. It's about living a certain life in relationship to God. And that provision is, again, full security that consists in protection, provision, deliverance, and victory. And if you note, and even the the way the psalm flows out and the parallelism of it, those ideas are dealt with in absolute terms, emphatic terms even. The trust that is tied to this isn't generic, it's not subjective, it's not some kind of whimsical, yes, I trust this being called God. It's grounded ultimately, as we'll see, in the knowledge of God's own character and purpose, his truth, his faithfulness, his integrity, to his own purposes, to his own nature. And it's in that context that you find this idea of protection 
and deliverance. So finding refuge in God then entails entrusting oneself and life circumstances to him with confidence that he is trustworthy. Not trusting him arbitrarily, in ignorance, speculatively, subjectively, but trusting him because of knowing him with all confidence that he is worthy of that trust. He is trustworthy. And that trust is human faithfulness that is in response to God's own faithfulness. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Why? Because he's the one who delivers you from the snare of the trapper, from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his wings. You know, this is the imagery of a bird that protects her young with, his, with its wings. Under his wings you may seek refuge and he will cover you with his pinions. His faithfulness, his truth, his integrity is a shield and a bulwark. Taking refuge in God is entrusting ourselves and our circumstances to him because we believe he's trustworthy. Because we know him, we know his purposes, we know what he's pledged. We know who he is. It is our trust in him, our faithfulness, if you will, that is grounded in his faithfulness. His faithfulness. And that relationship of trust is grounded also based in a relationship of mutual love. Yahweh speaks at the end of this and he says, because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. He has known my name. To know God is to love him. To know him in truth is to love him. It's impossible to know him in truth. I'm not saying no information about him or learn the Bible facts or whatever, but to know him in truth as he's ultimately known in Jesus himself is to love him. You can't know God and not love him. And that love that is grounded in our knowledge of him arises first out of God's love for us, right? This is what John says in 1 John. Why? Because God's love is the motive behind his self-disclosure. We only know him as he discloses himself. And it's his love that lies behind that disclosure. It's God's love for his creation that makes him reveal himself to it, make himself known flood it with his presence, with his truth, ultimately bring into it and take it up in himself in the person of Jesus. So the knowledge of God is tied to the love of God, and we love because he first loved us. All of that having its ultimate focal point, fulfillment, fullness in Jesus himself. So here's the point of that by way of just kind of overview. Human faithfulness is a matter of submissive trust. It's not just arbitrary confidence. You know, I use that expression from time to time, tongue in cheek. Uh, You know, faith as I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. Just kind of arbitrary, whimsical hopefulness. That's not what this is. 
This is a trust in the God who is known to be faithful and a submission to him in view of that. And that trust is grounded in a a relational intimacy, a relational knowledge that itself is the outworking of love. His love for us and therefore our love for him. This is what 1 John is all about. God's manifest love for his people, his truthfulness, his faithfulness, his integrity, and our or humans loving response in kind. And those who take refuge in him in that way find him to be a fortress and a high tower. That's what the psalmist says. That means that he delivers and preserves them and secures their well-being now and forever. You look at the way the psalm ends. And, and I want to note here, I didn't mention this yet, but this psalm also has multiple voices. If you remember back to Psalm 2, how you had multiple speakers or actors. You had the narrator, then you had the rebel speak, then you had Yahweh speak, then you had the sun king speak, and then the narrator summed it up. It's the same thing here. You have multiple speakers. And the last of the speakers is the Lord himself. And this is verse 14 through 16. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high is the idea. I will establish him. It's almost enthronement language. Because he has known my name. The parallelism says that love for God and knowing him in truth, knowing his name his name being synonymous with who he is. Loving him is synonymous with knowing him. I will, therefore, he will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him. I will rescue him. I will honor him. I will satisfy him with long life and I will cause his eyes to feast on my salvation. That's Yahweh speaking at the end. That's his assurance. So as I said, the psalmist speaks in very absolute language, emphatic language. And it's easy to read this psalm and interpret those assurances as promising a life free of trouble. If we will just be faithful, if we will just trust God, then all will be well. Think again about the parallelism that he has here, even building like an ascent. It's a climactic parallelism where he says, a thousand may fall at your side. Yea, 10,000 right at your right hand, but it's not going to touch you. And then he says, you will trample on the lion and the serpent. Yea, the young lion, the lion in his strength... And the dragon is the idea, the supreme serpent. And I'm not saying Satan here, that's not what he's saying. But it's, it's an escalation. The young lion, the strong lion, the strong serpent, the dragon, you will trample down. It's very absolute language, and certainly the language conveys the impression that if we will be faithful, what God is promising to his faithful children is a life free of difficulty. And I've known people that read this psalm in this way. 
The writer obviously has a reason for his superlatives, for his hyperbole, if you will. And ultimately, it's to point and underscore the all-encompassing, effectual well-being that God pledges to his children. Perhaps not in the way that we think. Jesus' own testing provides a crucial reference point for understanding this psalm. And that's where I'd like for us to turn for the rest of this. If you recall, verses 11 and 12 are actually cited in relation to Jesus' own testing in the wilderness. And that episode and the way that it was used and the way that Jesus responded to that is crucial to how we will appropriate and understand this psalm. So I'd like for us to consider that. The circumstances of Jesus' testing, if you turn to Matthew chapter 4, this is recorded in both, well actually Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of the synoptics, but Mark's account is just very passing. But I'd like to read it with you from Matthew's gospel. This is Matthew chapter 4. Actually, we'll back up to chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and you come to me to be baptized is the idea. And Jesus answered, saying to him, Permit it at this time. In this way it is fitting. This is to fulfill all righteousness. And so John permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove coming upon him and a voice out of heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Three very important dimensions to that. Then immediately Jesus was driven by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or tested by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I've always thought that's one of the great understatements in the scripture, but And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, remember, we've already heard that pronouncement out of God's mouth. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered and said, it is written, man does not live by bread alone. He shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. Here's Psalm 91. He will give his angels charge concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, it is also written or Also, it's not so much on the other hand, that's the way the NAS renders it, but again it is written, or it is also written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these things will I give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. So this testing in which Psalm 91 is brought to bear in relation to Jesus followed immediately after his baptism. And that's important. All of the synoptics treated in that way. They're linked very tightly together. His baptism was his solidarity with Israel. Very important. People stumble over this and they say, what do you mean to fulfill all righteousness? Jesus wasn't a sinner. He didn't need to repent of his sin. How is it fulfilling his righteousness for him to be baptized? It's the righteousness that speaks to God's purposes for him. He will fulfill the purpose of God that he is himself the embodiment of Israel. And therefore, he shows solidarity with his people in undergoing baptism. All Israel, the text says, and doesn't mean every person, but all Israel was coming out to him to be baptized, to John. The calling of the nation back to Yahweh and Jesus' solidarity with his people. That's what he's saying. This fulfills the righteousness, the purpose of the Father. And as he's baptized, he's anointed with the Spirit. Again, a very important symbolism. The promise to Israel, Israel would be the people in and among whom God gave his spirit, the power, the leading, the enablement of the spirit. And ultimately in the messianic figure in whom Israel would become Israel, he would be preeminently the man of the spirit. Jesus reads from that text in Isaiah in the synagogue in Nazareth in Luke 4, right? He opens the text, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he is anointed. This day this is fulfilled in your hearing. The spirit comes upon him and God's attesting affirmation is this is my beloved son. Well, Israel was the son of God. All of those ideas fit together to say this is the one in whom I intend God's righteousness, his purposes are that in this one Israel will become Israel. This is my beloved son, man of the spirit in whom I am well pleased. So immediately then Jesus is, goes out into the wilderness, not because he's lost, not because he's wandering around. The spirit drives him into the wilderness to be tested. It's an intentional thing. The spirit comes upon him and drives him into the wilderness. He is undergoing Israel's testing. 40 days corresponding to the 40 years. And the significance of this is that Jesus is being tested precisely or precisely at the central issues that were Israel's testing and concerning which Israel failed. So the satanic tests are tied to that episode of testing of Israel in the wilderness, the 40 years in the wilderness. And Jesus' responses are all drawn from the Deuteronomic text and essentially the accusation brought to Israel, how they should have responded, how they should have met that test in the wilderness. 
So the point is, Israel in the wilderness showed that it had failed and would continue to fail to be the Abrahamic people through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. And God pledged through his prophets another Israelite in whom Israel would become Israel and in whom that Abrahamic promise would be carried out on behalf of the world. So Jesus is being tested precisely as a new Israel, man of the spirit, son of God in whom God is well pleased. Israel failed the test. Would this one pass the test? That's the context in which this bringing of Psalm 91 to bear takes place. If you read in Exodus 16 and 17, you see, uh, you know, immediately in Exodus 15 is the Red Sea, the, the wiping out of Pharaoh's army and the song of Moses, right? The Lord has brought us out. He's, he's bringing us, he's delivered us to bring us into his sanctuary land that we might dwell with him in the mountain of his inheritance, the song of Moses, the celebration, the exaltation of Exodus 15. Immediately in 16, they start to grumble. Why did you bring us out here to die, Moses? We missed the leeks, we missed the onions, we, meet, we missed the meat pots of Egypt. There's nothing to drink, we're dying of thirst. And you see this series of immediate tests in which Israel grumbles and complains and finds fault and says, God, are you among us or not? Moses tells us, you brought us out. Where are you? Where is your provision? Where is your hand of deliverance? You see that again in 16 all the way up to 19 of Exodus where they arrive at Sinai. And then God says, if you will be faithful to my covenant, if you will fulfill your sonship, then you will be priests and kings. You will be a kingdom of priests, right? You will be my son faithfully on behalf of the nations. Yes, Lord, we will do that. All that you require of us, we will surely do. The ratifying of the covenant, the sprinkling of the book, Exodus 24. Moses goes up on the mountain, the people immediately make the golden calf. And out of that comes the condemnation. You shall worship the Lord your God and him alone will you serve. Well, why did they make the golden calf? God's left us. He appointed Moses to lead us into the promised land. Moses is gone. We haven't seen him. He's been gone for weeks. How are we going to get to the promised land? We'll make an image. We'll make God. We'll, we'll make God tangible in this calf. When they make the calf, they say, this, O Israel, is your God who brought you out of Egypt. Moses was the interface between them and God. Moses is gone. How are we going to interface with God? How are we going to get to the promised land? How can we make God be present among us? They make a calf. This is all background that ties very much into, again, Israel's testing and why Jesus was tested by the serpent in the way that he was. So why Psalm 91? Why does the devil bring Psalm 91 to bear? Well, as we've seen, this is a psalm that extols explicitly, emphatically, absolutely God's blessing on his faithful children. That he will deliver them, that he will protect them, that he will provide for them. 
And Satan recognized its usefulness in his attempt, his efforts to deceive and compromise the faithful son. Psalm 91 is a promise to the faithful sons who trust themselves to their God. If it speaks to the people of Israel as faithful sons and what they can expect, it speaks quintessentially to Jesus, the faithful son, the one in whom Israel was to be embodied and renewed. So again, Satan references verses 11 and 12, but he could have picked any part out of that and structured a test around it because the whole psalm speaks the same truth. But he picked verses 11 and 12. And what he does is what he did in the garden first and then what he did with Israel, which is he calls on Jesus to hold God accountable to his word. What happened in the garden? Did God really say? Didn't God say? What was the constant temptation to Israel? God has said, God has sent Moses. Is the Lord among us or not? Is God going to bring us forward or not? Holding him accountable to his word. God, you said this. Are you going to do it? Are you going to be uh, true to your word? Require of him, in other words, require of Yahweh that he show himself faithful. That was the temptation. God had anointed Jesus with his spirit. He declared him to be his beloved son in whom he was well pleased. Well, he needed to honor that by treating him like a son. If he is the beloved son in whom the father is well pleased, well, then he needs to treat him the way he says he treats sons. That was the essence of the temptation. And here it's crucial to note that Satan didn't misquote or take out of context Psalm 91. He didn't misquote it. It wasn't some semantic trickery. He didn't pull it out of context. He only stated what the psalm says. And he challenged Jesus to actually own the Father's promises. If you are the Son of God, God has said, he gives his angels charge concerning his faithful sons, of which you are one. He gives his angels charge concerning you to, that they will watch over you and guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's what he's promised you. If you're a son, then you can trust him for that. He was only challenging Jesus to own the truth of the psalm, just as the psalm challenge, challenges all of its readers to own its promises. If Jesus was truly a faithful son, he should take his father at his word. And that means that he should be willing to demonstrate his own faith by throwing himself off the temple's pinnacle, knowing that the Father has promised to take care of him, to deliver him, to preserve him. 
So how did Jesus respond to that? First of all, he didn't deny the accuracy of the text or the truthfulness of the text. He didn't say, get behind me, Satan. God didn't say that. Or you have misquoted the text. He didn't accuse Satan of taking it out of context. And he didn't say, oh, it's just, you can't interpret it in that way. It's, it's not, uh, you know, empty. It's, all it is is just kind of hyperbole for rhetorical effect. He didn't say any of that. He rebuked him in a way that showed that he discerned the subtlety in which Satan was twisting this. He responded in a way that he understood the ploy. The ploy, and and we have to get this, the ploy was to get Jesus to fall prey to the temptation to confuse faith and faithfulness with presumption or putting God to the test. This is a common human failure, a common Christian failure, to confuse faith and faithfulness, trusting God for his promises with putting God to the test or presumption, presuming upon God. Psalm 91 extols, it celebrates the blessings of security, triumph, victory that God grants to his faithful children. The deceiver was attempting to use it as an inducement to unfaithfulness. How so? How so? By exhorting Jesus to demonstrate his faith in that way, he was actually tempting him to be unfaithful, to put God to the test. What seemed like a claim of faithfulness, if you're the son of God, you need to believe God. I mean, one of the common phrases in our vernacular in in contemporary evangelicalism is claiming God's promises, right? Claim God's promises. All Satan was doing was saying, claim your father's promises, the promises he's given to you in his word as a son. Be faithful. Believe him. And yet it was actually an inducement to unfaithfulness, thereby securing his failure as the new Israel, securing his failure to fulfill his own role and and mission as God's true image son. He would show himself to be another unfaithful son. So Jesus' verbal response was, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Yes, it is written, as you said, but again, it is also written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that answer, actually, and that response answered Israel's own failure in demanding that God show himself faithful when they were thirsty. If you look where this quote comes from, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Where is it written? You shall not put the Lord God to your test. Well, it's, it's in principle all over the scripture. But where can you find that statement? You find it in Moses' indictment of Israel at Massah. When they said, we're dying of thirst. 
There's no water. Why did God bring us out here just to die in the wilderness? There's nothing to drink. There's nothing to drink. Is the Lord among us or not? Did he bring us out or not? Where is he? Why isn't he taking care of us? And Moses said, you tested the Lord in that day. You put him to the test. That's what Jesus is drawing from here. What you're requiring of me, in essence here, Satan, is that I would fall prey to that same temptation to put the Lord to the test. In the name of claiming his promises, he's among us, he's bringing us, he's delivering us, he's doing all these things. I can now say, do this, do this, do this. So ultimately, Satan, and and I would say this of all of them, but certainly of all the testing that he brought to Jesus, but certainly here you can see, he's testing him at the most fundamental point of authentic human existence, which is life with God characterized by trusting submissive faith. He was tested not only as the new Israel, but as man. Because what was Israel but a subset of the human race through whom God would establish this relationship of sonship through whom all the families of the earth would become sons and daughters, right? Jesus wasn't just tested as the son of Abraham, an Israelite. He was tested as the son of Eve, the seed of the woman. And this test hit him at the most fundamental way in which human beings are tested. Which is, what does it look like to live a life of trusting, submitted faith? What does it look like to believe God for his promises? What does it look like to be in submission to him? And that's where I'd like to close. How do we claim the promises of Psalm 91. What do we do with Psalm 91? Now, it may seem that all of this stuff with with Jesus testing is kind of extraneous to Psalm 91, but I would argue it's absolutely crucial to understanding, as I said earlier, the meaning of this psalm and what do we do with it. How do we appropriate it for ourselves? Jesus obviously understood that God wasn't promising his faithful children to reward their faithfulness with every kind of earthly security, safety, absolute triumph over all adversity. How do I know that? If that were the case, and given Jesus' own life experience which he was undergoing at that time and which would mark his life all the way up to the death of the cross, if that is what Jesus thought and given his life experience, then and if that's what the psalm is really promising, then we would have to ascribe unfaithfulness either to him or to the Father. Because the God who says I'm true has promised these things to his faithful children. Jesus didn't experience the things that the psalm says in the way that the psalm says it. So either he was unfaithful or God was unfaithful or both. But if the Father is true, 
If the words of the psalm are true, if his promises are true, and if Jesus was indeed a faithful son, then we have to understand Psalm 91 in the light of Jesus' own experience. That's the point. His relationship to this, and even the way he was tested in relationship to it, is key to us understanding what we do with it. Jesus enjoyed all that the psalm pledged, not because his father granted him an untroubled life, free of pain, suffering, sorrow, difficulty, injustice. Quite the opposite, he experienced those promises in and through the most profound and agonized suffering. Nobody suffered the way the Son of Man suffered. And when people saw that, I mean, even the Isianic picture of the Messiah was that people would see him and they would say, he's afflicted by God, he's stricken by God. He's not beloved of God, he's stricken by God. And that was the judgment of Jesus by his own generation. This one's beloved of God, at best, he's a demoniac, right? He's, he's demon-possessed. He's insane. If God's really with him, then he would come down off that cross. Where's his father? Where are the angels? You know, or, or Jesus said, I could call all this legion of angels. Where's this deliverance if he's the beloved son? He experienced the promises of the psalm in and through a life of profound and agonized suffering. Jesus did understand and he appropriated the truth that his father would deliver, preserve, and honor him and set him securely on high as his faithful son. Not by delivering him from all threats and suffering, but by bearing him through them. Bearing him through them so that his own submissive faith, his authentic sonship should be nurtured and perfected by them. He learned the obedience of sonship through the things he suffered. See, what I'm getting at is we have to rethink, we have to put on a different pair of glasses when we read something like Psalm 91. And we think about what it means to claim the promises of God. Is God truthful? When our lives are filled with hardship and suffering and difficulty and injustice, can we come to Psalm 91 and say God is faithful? Some would say no. We have people in our time, uh, in the church, teachers, leaders, who promise that sort of life, a trouble-free life. And when it's not realized, they say, well, you don't have enough faith, or there's unconfessed sin in your life. And sometimes people conclude, Christians conclude, God isn't faithful. He promised this, and he hasn't done that. Where's my deliverance? I thought I was supposed to trample underfoot the dragon and the young lion. I thought I was supposed to be untouched and unscathed when the slaughter is happening all around me. Why is that not the case? What then is the implication for viewing the psalm as the promise of a trouble-free life? And a lot of Christians do. 
It shows that that person has succumbed to the satanic deception. Those who take the psalm as the guarantee that I call on God and he wipes out my enemies and he delivers me and he provides for whatever I feel I need at the moment, they show that they have succumbed to the satanic deception. Jesus didn't. He detected and resisted it because he understood that what God was promising, all of that is realized through the path of suffering. If you look in John 12, Jesus says some very interesting things here. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Glorified. And then he explains what he means. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The one who loves his life loses it. The one who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant be. If anyone serves me, then the Father will honor him. And now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, the hour of my glorification? No, for this very purpose I came to this hour. And then he goes on to say, what? And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. What is the path of glory? What is the path of glory? When Jesus is on the road after his resurrection, with the, on the road to Emmaus with, with the, the two men, and they're saying, we thought this was the time of redemption. We thought this was the time of Israel's liberation. We thought this was the time when God was going to rise and do this great restorative work. Instead, we had this guy, Jesus, that we thought was the Messiah crucified. And Jesus said, Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that is written in the prophets. Was it not necessary that the Son of Man should suffer these things and enter into his glory? See, wrong thinking causes us to not only wrongly judge God, but to even wrongly understand the work of Christ and our relationship with it. All of us, all human beings, instinctively believe that a good God seeks only happy circumstances and outcomes for us. The whole question of theodicy, the problem of evil, is bound up in this expectation. How can this be with a good God? If God is good, then this. Because this is what goodness looks like, right? A good God, and you hear this even in people's objections to the Christian faith. If God were good, then... And even people who walk away from the faith, this is the parable of the soils. Trouble, trial, difficulty, persecution, choke out the life and make it unfruitful, right? The seed. I thought God was good. Where's the goodness of God? Why is it this way? Why is it that way? We all instinctively say, okay, if God is good, then here's what he wants for me. Here's the happy circumstances. Here's the outcomes he has for me. And that makes us ready prey to this deception. 
Claim the promises of God. Here it is. It's right here in the Bible. The word of God. Claim those promises. And then faith becomes trusting God for those things that we deem good, the things that we believe God has promised us, even to the point of actively putting him to the test, just as Israel did. Okay, God, you've pledged to secure my good, and I'm going to pursue what I believe in my heart to be that good, and I'm going to believe you for it. And when it does, if it doesn't happen, then I'll know you're unfaithful. We're going to put God to the test. Jesus understood, and he, as the, the new man, the new Israel, as, as God's true image son, he understood and he has shown us that the good that God intends for his image children is obtained through suffering and death. Not what we want to hear, but through dying to life as we know it in order to live into the actual human life that consists in sharing in Jesus' life. And with that, I just want to close with Matthew 16. Again, parts of this are very familiar, but but listen to this through the lens again of what, what I've been talking about today. Matthew 16, verse 13, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, who do people say that the Son of Man is? What do people believe about me? Who do they think I am? What do they think I came to do? What do they think this is all about? What do they think is going to come from this? And the disciples said, some say John the Baptist. Remember, John had been killed. Others say Elijah. Remember, Elijah was going to come before the great and awesome day of Yahweh. Others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are now Petros, the little stone. Upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, the gates of the grave, in other words, the powers of death, will not overpower it. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be, having been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be, having been loosed in heaven. That's the way you need to read that. And then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Messiah. Seems very strange. And as they went forward from that time, Jesus, the Messiah, began to show his disciples that he, the Messiah, must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed, and then raised on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. This doesn't make sense. This isn't how God's going to accomplish this glorious work. This isn't how you're to triumph. This isn't how God intended it work. Remember the men on the road to Emmaus? We thought, we thought, we thought. Jesus said, wasn't it necessary that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be killed and enter into his glory? Peter takes him aside and says, we're not going to allow this to happen. You're the Messiah. You're the king. You're the triumphant one. 
And what did Jesus say to the one whom he had previously said, blessed are you, God has revealed this to you? He didn't say, you got it wrong, Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. Now, is he saying Peter is Satan? No. He's saying that Peter is, in a sense, manifesting the satanic manipulation or the, the, the satanic stumbling block that would cause Jesus to himself say, yeah, why would it be this way for me? Why should I go and suffer these many things? Why is it to happen in this sort of a way? And we know Jesus is a man tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He agonized with these issues of his own yieldedness to his Father. If it be possible, let this cup be taken from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus had to fight the fight of faith. He had to himself give himself trusting his Father and his Father's faithfulness. He went to the death of Calvary, believing that his father would raise him from the dead. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking about this the way men do. You're not thinking about it according to God's own designs and God's purposes. You see, we've got to put on a different pair of glasses when we read Psalm 91 and think about what it's actually promising to us. Jesus understood how these promises are to be fulfilled. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And then Jesus turned to them all and he said, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me as the Messiah, then let him follow me in the way that I am going. Let him take up his own cross, deny himself and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake shall find his life. What is Jesus saying? Go hang yourself on a cross at Easter time or whatever like they do in the Philippines? No, he's not saying that. He's saying my cross represents me dying to the, to the Adamic way of being human that I was born into. It's my ultimate contradiction of this false humanness. Agreeing with God against man as broken, putting that to death. And if you would follow me, you must also agree with me and my Father against life as you know it. You must also die to the perspective and the thinking and the expectations of life as you naturally have them and walk out this path of glory and the promises of Psalm, of Psalm 91 actually in the way that God made them, actually in the way that you see them realized in my own experience. And this is not, saying some kind of gloomy, disheartening view of the Christian life. It's actually the only view that is true, and therefore it is actually the only way in which we can find joy, peace, and hope that are authentic in the Christian life. People can promise us an easy way. People can hand us candy, but it's not going to nourish us. This is not gloominess. This is not gloom and doom. This is the path of glory. 
Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And Paul said, the Spirit bears witness that we are sons of God. We are sons as the Messiah himself is a son. And if sons, then heirs. Heirs of all that Jesus is heir to. If we share in his suffering, then we will share in his glory. How do we share in his suffering? By adopting the mindset and way of thinking and approaching life that he did. Dying to life as we know it and living into life as it's true in him. That's the path of hope. That's the path of joy. That's the path of peace that carries us in all circumstances. We always want God to change our circumstances. What he wants is to use our circumstances to change us. God fixed this, fixed that, fixed the other thing. He's about conforming us to the image of his son. That means that the life that Jesus lived is the life that God has us live if we're sharers in his life. Doesn't mean we're all going to suffer in some magnificent way or be martyred or have, you know, just the worst problems in the world. But it is a life lived in contradiction to the natural way of doing life. And it brings its problems. It brings its calamities. Father, I do pray that you would help us in these things. These things are counterintuitive. They don't come to us naturally. And in many ways, you know, it's interesting that we are so desirous of being like Jesus. But we don't want to be like Jesus in terms of the life that he actually lived. We, We just want to float above the fray. We want to find ourselves, as it were, healing and casting out demons and doing all kinds of marvelous things, floating above the fray of life and its difficulties, not being subject to them. But Father, I pray that you would continue to draw us in, that you would continue to transform us by the renewing of our minds, that you would enable us and continue to grow us in thinking your thoughts, having your interests in mind. I pray that you would deliver us from our natural mindedness, from our self-seeking, our independence, our self-concern. And may we truly labor to be those who see as in a mirror the glory of Christ reflected in our own face, confident, hopeful, striving, knowing that in all things, You are transforming us into the same likeness from glory to glory. That's your destiny for us. I pray that would be our longing. That would be our goal. That would be our labor. Help each one here today, again, Father, according to his understanding, according to his faith, according to his maturity. Meet each one in his need and help us to all together labor to grow up in all things into Christ who is the head. In his name and for his sake we ask, amen.